We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome the founder and CEO of Axia Solutions, Susan Gatehouse, with an exclusive report on the impact COVID-19 is having on long haulers, patients who have recovered from the virus. Past president of Behema Rose Dunn returns with part two in her exclusive series on how to fix healthcare. Senior healthcare consultant and well-known health information management leader, Glorianne Bryant reports the latest coding news, and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and the man who once whispered to an Iowa farmer, if you build it, I can sell it. Chuck Buck. <laughs> hey, thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the 473rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. And hello, everyone. Now, Erica, before we talk about today's Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast, I just want to say that, wow, this afternoon is going to be a big day for us. Yes, that's right. Today, you and I will be participating in a live three-part webcast on the 2022 IPPS Summit featuring Lori Johnson. Yep, that would be today and, of course, tomorrow and Thursday. And then uh, you and I are going to be joining Lori for her three-part final series, uh, both at the beginning of the broadcast and at the end of the webcast as well. That's right. Essentially, you and I are going to bookend Lori's three webcasts. That's right. The webcast series is all part of Ips Palooza. Clark, tell us a little bit about Ips Palooza. To celebrate Ips Palooza, ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday are giving away a one-month subscription to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast portal. One lucky individual will have unlimited access to ICD-10 Monitor webcasts for one month. The winner will be announced on Tuesday, August 24th during Talk 10 Tuesday. Visit ICD10Monitor.com to enter to win. And be sure to register to listen to us today when Eric and I bookend Lori Johnson for part one of her three-part series on the new IPPS final rule. Now, Erica, you have a talkback segment today. What are you going to be talking about? Yeah, well, I'm going to follow up last week's comments about the physician fee schedule proposed rule. And today I'm going to be talking about critical care time. Wow, very, very good. Always look forward to your talkback segments. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck, and the Health Resource and Services Administration, more commonly known as HRSA, provides COVID-19 reimbursement for uninsured individuals. There are still some providers that are unsure how to participate and bill for providing COVID-19 services to the uninsured through HRSA. Since February 4th of 2020, providers who have conducted COVID-19 testing or provided treatment for the uninsured can request claim reimbursement through the program electronically and will be reimbursed generally at Medicare rates subject to available funding. Providers can also request reimbursement for COVID-19 vaccine administration. To get paid, you must first enroll as a provider participant, two, check patient eligibility, three, submit patient information Four, be able to submit claims, and to participate, providers must attest to the following registration. First, they must have checked for healthcare coverage, 
eligibility and confirm that the patient is uninsured. Next, they must accept the defined program reimbursement as payment in full. They also must agree not to balance bill the patient, and they must agree that the program terms and conditions may be subject to post-reimbursement review. Reimbursement under this program will be made for qualifying testing for COVID-19 treatment services with a primary COVID-19 diagnosis and for qualifying COVID-19 vaccine administration fees as determined by HRSA, subject to adjustment as necessary, which would include the following. Specimen collection, diagnostic and antibody testing, Testing related to visits included the following settings, an office, an urgent care, emergency room, or telehealth. Three, treatment at the office visit, including emergency room, inpatient, outpatient observation, skilled nursing facility, long-term care, LTAC, rehabilitation care, home health, durable medical equipment, emergency ambulance transportation, non-emergent patient transfers and ambulance, and FDA license authorized and approved treatments as they become available for COVID-19 treatment. And finally, administration fees related to FDA license and authorized vaccines. The following caveats also apply. Services not covered by Medicare are not covered. Claims will also be subject to Medicare's timely filing requirements. Any treatment without COVID-19 primary diagnosis, except when pregnancy and the COVID-19 may be listed as a secondary condition are not covered. Hospice services are not covered. Outpatient prescription drugs are not covered. And all claims submitted must be complete and final. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's August 17th, and we're listening to the 473rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. For a milestone as consequential as implementation of the inpatient prospective payment system final rule, you need more than a clear picture of what's coming. You also need trusted insights and analysis of all the changes, including new ICD-10 CMPCS codes when October 1st arrives. Only ICD-10 Monitor delivers what you need. The 2022 IPPS Summit Final Rule Update with expert insights and analysis. It is a three-part webcast series. As in previous years, ICD-10 coding expert Lori Johnson will walk you through all the must-know changes in the 2022 IPPS including new and deleted ICD-10 CMPCS codes, MSDRG modifications, new technology add-on payments, and changes related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Plus, the live webcast series will be interactive, giving you an opportunity to get expert answers to your questions. All this comes your way beginning today through Thursday the 19th. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Glorianne Bryant. She's sitting in today for Lori Johnson. Good morning, Glorianne. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone out there. Today, I wanted to bring everyone's attention to the recent OIG report, and it's a long title. It's titled, Medicare Continues to Make Overpayments for Chronic Care Management Services, Costing the Program and its Beneficiaries Millions of Dollars. A long title. Basically, yes, there are overpayments being made, for chronic care management. And that acronym CCM is what's used in the report. Now, this is more specific to talking about the CPT codes. And if you go back a little bit in history, you find out that in January of 2015, CMS released a policy under the physician fee schedule for chronic care management for coverage. Then in 2017, Medicare separated out the CCM, the Chronic Care Management CPT codes, for a non-complex 
and a complex service. They unbundled that, separated it out. Now that's really important. So there are CPT codes for non-complex and then there's CPT codes, a few for complex. Now you heard in the title, chronic care management. So the individuals that are covered under these services have to have chronic conditions. And in the 2019 CMS MedLearn Network booklet guidance, they did list some chronic care management diseases and conditions such as Alzheimer's, arthritis, asthma, atrial fib, autism, cancer, cardiovascular, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, depression, diabetes, hypertension, and infectious diseases like HIV AIDS. So you get a kind of idea, and, and those would have to be, of course, coded in ICD-10 properly based on the documentation. Now, there are certain providers in the rules as well, physicians and non-physician practitioners that may bill CCM services, including certified nurse midwives, clinical nurse specialists, nurse practitioners, and physician's assistants. And this specific OIG report, which came out earlier this month, and it talked about the overpayments regarding non-complex and complex CCM, they had audited 2017 and 2018 claims. This resulted in their estimate of 1.9 million in overpayments based on 50,192 claims and encounters that they reviewed. They found in that some specific details on the overpayment piece of 1.4 million in overpayments in which providers build non-complex or complex services more than one for the same beneficiary in the same service period. They found 438,000 in overpayments for instances when the same provider billed for both non-complex and complex, and they overlapped the care management services rendered to the same beneficiary in the same service periods. And then they also found 50,000 in overpayments for incremental complex that were billed along with complex in overpayments. So when we look at some of this, it's very interesting. The other piece that they talked about was the beneficiaries share or cost sharing that had totaled up $540,000 in those claims that they audited. The piece about the, the beneficiary's share of cost, co-payment type piece is that when there's mistakes made, we always should look at that as well. And that's a good a tip from them in that report. So there are a variety of CPT codes that we would be addressing if we now should go forward and look at our own CCM services. The CPT codes, and I'll just list some of the, the numbers for you, are 99490, 99439, which was new in 2021 as an add-on, and 99491. Now, those are what we call basic or the non-complex. The complex codes, there's two, 99487, and 99489, which is an add-on code for each additional 30 minutes of clinical staff time. Documentation of the services provided, the time for those services is very important in the billing cycle and the billing process of these particular claims. And it should be noted that the Medicare reimbursement is higher for the complex CPT codes over the basic ones for CCM. The bottom line is that we need to be very proactive and conduct our own 
internal external audits on CCM encounters. So check those out and find out what you're doing in your organization, your practice. These can be hospital-based outpatient services or physician services. And you should have a process in place for returning overpayments. So if you identify that you were overpaid for encounters, and this goes for any encounter, you need to be sure to be returning those overpayments as OIG reminded in this report also. Driving for accuracy and compliance, that is really always the primary goal. So now I'll return it back to you, Erica. Thanks, Glorianne. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant and well-known National Coding and Health Information Management Leader, Glorianne Bryant. Here now with part two in her exclusive report on fixing healthcare is a past president, former CEO of AHIMA, Rose Dunn. And hello, Rose. So, what are your ideas for fixing healthcare? Good morning, everyone. Um, two weeks ago, I shared Jackie Ello's comments from BC Advantage about three inefficient and redundant activities that we have in healthcare. I said these prevented us from directing those resources to enhancing the quality of care for our patients. This week, I'm offering my three recommendations to help streamline healthcare and eliminate unnecessary activities and costs. And the first one is a limit, eliminate accreditations. Our taxes already pay for the state to review and validate that healthcare organizations meet the Medicare conditions of participation state Medicaid, and licensure requirements. And although a healthcare organization may wish to prominently post their accreditation certificate on the lobby wall, accreditation does not relieve the hospitals of CMS oversight, which is done by the state. Even the advisory board reported that external accreditation is no better than state agency inspections and does not yield any enhanced patient outcomes as a result of using an external accreditation agency. It begs the question, why should we spend healthcare dollars to engage another proctologist to review what the state can do effectively and provide us with a report for our process improvement? However, to make this recommendation stick, payers must be mandated to accept state reviews and not require yet another third party to accredit the healthcare organizations. My second one is convert to one procedural coding classification. Why do we need two procedural coding systems, MACPT and ICD-10 PCS? I realize that each has its own pros and cons. However, the restricted ability to compare data across patient statuses and between entities creates a barrier to effectively and strategically plan and manage care across the healthcare spectrum. PCS can describe everything that's in CPT into the same or greater than uh, greater detail than CPT. That doesn't mean I'm advocating for PCS. It's not as easy to learn as CPT. However, I see a real opportunity here for us to get physicians out of the coding business and get them into the documentation specificity business by handing off the heavy lifting of coding and PCS to certified coders. Finally, let's standardize LCDs. Local coverage determinations are decisions made by a Medicare administrative contractor 
whether to cover a particular item or service in their region. Each MAC is required to abide by the same Social Security Act regulations. So why do some LCDs differ from region to region? The Social Security Act doesn't differ from region to region. Even the Office of the Inspector General weighed in on this issue in 2014. Their report said the presence of these LCDs was unrelated to the cost and utilization of items and services. LCDs limit coverage differently across states. LCDs also define similar clinical topics inconsistently. So providers bordering more than one MAC deal with this hassle every day. The OIG recommended that CMS require the MACs to jointly develop a single set of coverage policies. CMS concurred. Has anything happened? Nada. A few more thoughts are in my article, so check it out. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rose. I totally agree that providers should go back to just taking care of patients and let coders do the coding because that's what they do better. That was Rose Dunn, past president and former CEO of AHIMA and recipient of AHIMA's Distinguished Member and Legacy Awards recipient. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And again, Rose, thank you so very much. And you can read Rose's excellent article in today's IC10 Monitor. And coming up later in this broadcast, we're going to hear from Dr. Erica Reamer's provocative talkback segment. And next, why it's important for coders to quantify the sequela following acute COVID-19. But first, this very important message. High-quality clinical documentation plays an essential role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. The Clinical Documentation Integrity Handbook measures up to this critical function using a three-step approach that covers possible clinical indicators, risk factors, and treatments, enabling effective chart reviews and physician queries. Divided into major diagnostic categories, this convenient handbook integrates coding rules and guidelines, DRG assignments, breakdowns of ICD-10 codes, and high-risk DRGs. In addition, solidify your knowledge through case studies, anatomy, and physiology lessons, at-a-glance reference aids, diagrams, and much more. This is the ideal training tool for both new and seasoned CDI specialists. The Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity Handbook, now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Susan Gatehouse is here with an exclusive report on the impact of COVID-19 is having on long haulers. Now, those are patients who have recovered from the infection. And hello, Susan. What do we need to know, especially coders? Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to all. As you said, with COVID-19, it is rapidly expanding. Unfortunately, there is a surge of infection that is triggering a renewed look at the impact the virus is having on long haulers. It is of particular importance for the coding community to have a definitive line drawn between sequela and active COVID as we approach the effective date for the new ICD-10 diagnosis code U09.9 described as post-COVID-19 condition unspecified. Erica Reamer reported on this on March 18th during Talk 10 Tuesday. Anyone not familiar with this code, I would encourage you to reference this article. Research shows that about 14% of adults develop at least one new clinical sequela regarding medical care after recovery from COVID-19, though many specifics have yet to be qualified. 
The rise in COVID-19 infections prompt an increased focus on the impact the virus has on those suffering after recovery or otherwise referenced as long haulers. This, the implementation of U09.9 promotes granularity in the various aspects of this virus. Collecting accurate data and gauging severity can be challenging as the data collected relies on self-reporting in many instances. So the October 1 implementation of the new code for COVID sequela comes not a moment too soon. The ICD-10 CM guidelines are clear about sequela, defining it as the residual effect condition produced after the acute phase of an illness or injury has terminated. There is no time limit on when a sequela code can be used. The new ICD-10 code U09.9 should be used if there is a description of sequela of COVID-19, a residual condition following a patient recovering from the virus. The new U09.9 will be specific to a post-COVID condition unspecified and will be used in place of code B94.8, which is sequela of other infectious and parasitic diseases. So U09.9 is effective October 1. The provider must link a patient's presenting symptoms to a previous COVID infection. The CDC is, help, is a helpful resource as they have listed conditions common with post-COVID patients. This magnifies the importance of physician linkage to post-COVID as many of these conditions can occur among patients that have never had COVID. For example, fatigue and headache, and those are just two examples. The CDC has also listed by body system conditions that are commonly seen in post-COVID patients, which are a bit more severe in addition. Um, in addition, this first quarter coding clinic, 2021, page 31, provides numerous examples of the accurate use of U09.9. The important items for coders to remember is to assign a code related to the specific condition associated with COVID-19, along with the new code U09.9, post-COVID-19 condition unspecified, and let me state when this is appropriate. If there's lack of clarity in the clinical record, which we are seeing today, it would be appropriate to use the new code if, if a coder feels comfortable with the documentation in the record. If not, certainly query. Documentation is key for accurate reporting of COVID sequela. COVID continues to be a grave concern. Physician education related to this topic and the corresponding coding guidelines are paramount. To say the least, it's a confusing topic which requires consistent and effective communication among physicians, CDI, and coders. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Susan. That was Susan Gatehouse. Susan is the founder and the CEO of Axia Solutions. And be sure to read her story in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? As I said last week, the calendar year 2022 physician fee schedule proposed rule came out July 23rd, and CMS is solic sorry, soliciting comments by September 13th, 2021. Today, I'm going to review the proposed changes to critical care billing. In my opinion, these changes would more accurately reflect and compensate providers for the critical care services being furnished. On page 39208, CMS offers the definition of critical care as, quote, 
the direct delivery by a physician or other qualified healthcare professional of medical care for a critically ill or injured patient in which there is acute impairment of one or more vital organ systems such that there is a probability of imminent or life-threatening deterioration of the patient's condition, close quote. They acknowledge that critical care requires high-complexity medical decision-making. It is typically furnished in critical care areas, like the intensive care unit or the emergency department, and requires the full attention of the caregiver. Essentially, CMS plans to adopt the current procedural terminology, CPT, language and guidance, including which services are bundled into critical care services. The incremental billing practice is explained in the proposed rule, and the fact that time need not be continuous is explained. 99291 is the CPT code for the first 30 to 74 minutes of critical care time on a given day, and then 99292 is billed in increments of additional 30 minutes. CMS is asking for comments about how to report time when contiguous services extend beyond midnight to the following calendar day. That's important. CMS is trying to address the situation where two or more providers from the same or different group are furnishing services and how to credit both practitioners for their time. If concurrent care is medically necessary and not duplicative, they are proposing to allow billing for the services of each practitioner, which is different. This is welcome because historically, only one practitioner could be credited with critical care time for any given moment in time. In a trauma or code situation, there may be multiple providers furnishing critical care concurrently, but only one of them is permitted to claim critical care time presently. CMS is proposing to allow for aggregation of time of providers in the same specialty and group to meet the threshold of initial critical care service, 99291. However, CMS needs to correct the calculated cumulative time threshold for 99292 to 104 minutes, which Ron Hirsch pointed out to me. They added 74 minutes plus 30 minutes and arrived at 114 minutes. I am ecstatic to see their proposal recognizing that the practice of medicine has evolved toward a more team-based approach to care and greater integration in the practice of physicians and NPPs. And they are proposing to allow for split shared billing of critical care time, which is not currently allowed. This parallels the comments I made regarding the minimum criteria for um, substantive portion of time for any split shared billing. I think 50% is excessive and that at least 25% physician time is more realistic. CMS is asking for comments as to whether it is appropriate to bill for an E&M visit on the same calendar date as critical care by the same provider. I wonder if applying the criteria of medically necessary and non-duplicative services could address this issue. I also wonder how common this scenario is nowadays with hospitalists and intensivists abounding. The final element of critical care relates to critical care services in the setting of a global surgical period. I think it is fair to limit the surgeon who performs the procedure and is paid with that global fee, but other providers should be allowed to build critical care services if they are medically necessary and non-duplicative. My favorite part of the proposed rule, which will come as no surprise to you guys, is discussion of the documentation requirements. The key elements would be total time, 
assertion that the services were medically reasonable and necessary to treat a critical condition, and sufficient documentation that the role played could be established. A good attestation and a strong story would accomplish this. Take advantage of the opportunity to shape the rule. Submit your comments before the deadline. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. We have a number of questions. We're not going to be able to answer them uh, today, but we'll make every effort to answer them offline later. And that's going to be a wrap for our 473rd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tucson. I want to thank our panelists today, Gloria Ann Bryant, who sat in today for Lori Johnson, Rose Dunn, Tim Powell, and Susan Gatehouse, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And Clark, tell us a little bit about Ipsapalooza before we say goodbye. Ipsapalooza is a 10-week period that began when the inpatient prospective payment system final rule was released and continues through October 1st. That's when the regulations, including the ICD-10 codes, become effective. Talk 10 Tuesday and the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board are focused on relevant information in the release of the new codes and will provide both the news and in-depth analysis of all IPPS-related regulations. And a reminder, be sure to register today for Lori Johnson's webcast on the new IPBS final rule. That's at 1.30 Eastern. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Talk to Intrusion podcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk to Intrusion and ICD-10 Monitor. Everybody have a great week. Talk to Intrusion is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.